Hello and welcome to episode four of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. Thanks to everyone who's listened to the pod so far. I wasn't sure what to expect when I began a couple of months ago, but I'm grateful for all the support. Be sure to tell other sports fans you know about Hallowed Ground. Today on the show, we have Brian Morey, Executive Director of the Patriots Hall of Fame in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Brian and I had a fantastic conversation about preserving the recent success of the Patriots franchise, how the museum has developed educational programs for kids, and his unique start in the museum industry. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be exploring the career of Steve Grogan. Be sure to stay tuned after our interview for some fun facts about the best Patriots QB, not named Tom Brady. Now, here's my conversation with Brian. Well, today's guest is Brian Morey, the Executive Director of the Patriots Hall of Fame in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being here. kind of wanted to start by just talking about your journey to um, the Patriots Hall of Fame. It looks like you have a, like a journalism background of some sort when I was researching online and just kind of talk about um, your, your path to the Patriots Hall of Fame. Yeah, so it's, it's probably a little different than most people in the business. You know, I was a journalism major in college at Boston University. After I graduated, I moved to Atlanta. I did an internship at CNN. Uh, I did, you know, odd jobs. You know, people laugh at me. I was like, well, I was interning at CNN for, the, for you know, four nights a week, zero dollars. I was like bar backing and bussing tables and I made dog beds, you know, yes, beds for dogs. <laughs> and uh, not exactly a high point in my uh, career. And then uh, looking to come back up north, I actually took a job at the University of Rhode Island which was a paid internship. So I was two years out of college making $900 a month on a 10-month contract. So it was, uh, you know, and I had gotten married. So I used to tell my wife, what do you mean you need new socks? Those only have two holes in them. You know, it, it was definitely a tough time. Didn't have medical insurance during that period. But I worked with a woman named Beth James, whose husband, Stacy, was the... Uh, Director of Media Relations, now the Vice President of Media Relations at the Patriots, and worked alongside her, you know, worked hard. She actually left to go take a job at Brown University, and I was at the University of Rhode Island, and so I got her job on an interim basis. I was told by the athletic director that they couldn't hire me full-time because they needed to hire a woman because women were underrepresented in the field and might still be for all I know. But, so I understood that. And I was actually, you know, some people can't believe he said that to me. I was actually glad that he said that to me. So I knew to really, you know, keep looking and, and whatnot. So but then I got a call from Beth and uh, Patriots Football Weekly had started. It was the team newspaper. Uh, they had operated for a couple of years with just interns and were looking to hire an editor and full-time writer. And so I sent my resume to Stacy James. He passed it along. I went and interviewed and I got that job. And that was in 1997. So I worked for the Patriots actually from 1997 to 2005. And then went and did sports radio in Providence for two years. Hosted an afternoon drive talk show in Providence, Rhode Island from three to seven every day. And then when they started building the museum, they reached back out to me and we had some conversations about coming back. And I made it very clear. I think I said to Jonathan Kraft, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, right? And uh, he said, you'll learn. And I, I actually, that kind of inspired me. And I went out and, you know, you can't see it on, on the podcast here, but on my bookshelf behind me, I have a couple of books about museums. I went out and bought that day. And I started reading about how to run a museum. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot on the fly, but I came in. Uh, while the museum was under construction in December of 2007 and really uh, was on the ground floor for building out all of the exhibits. And uh, it was an awesome experience and one I've continued to build on. Now, but, now we opened the museum in September of 2008 and uh, been, I've been there ever since as the executive director. That's really cool. It's it's cool how you kind of made your way back to the Patriots after like a little a little break. So I think it's it's neat that they they thought of you and remembered you and you had worked really hard and like they they remember that stuff. So well, and you know, Andrew, I always talk about relationships and impressions that you leave on people. And you know, I worked really hard when I was there. They knew me. They knew I knew the culture and the expectations within the organization. 
and you know you hear the term patriot way all the time right and people people in the media will mock it like when something goes wrong when somebody a player does something bad off the field or something like that i always tell people the patriot way to me means that everything we do will be done at a championship level that doesn't mean we reach that level that's the goal and that starts with the craft family and that's the expectation so you know if 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 you can't handle that on a day-to-day basis, then maybe it's not for you. Right. Yeah. It's the culture that's been there since, since you started in 97. And that's really when they started to get good. And then um, for Super Bowl in 2001 and stuff like that. And so my next question is how did the museum itself kind of come about? Because that, that was a, a good time period to honor the Patriots. And um, how did that kind of come about? Well, I'll say this first and foremost, it probably doesn't happen without trophies right. in, in hand, you know, I think that's a key component of it, but um, the crafts had always wanted to figure out a better way to honor the greatest Patriots of all time and preserve the team's history. And, you know, we had this hall of fame quote, quote, started in 1991 was when they began. And there was no formal process for induction, like the owner at the time, but maybe just pick somebody or, uh, there was no vote, there was no real process. And so old stadium, the old Foxborough Stadium, when you walked in the main entrance, there was a stairwell that went up and the Hall of Fame consisted of framed jerseys on the wall going up the stairs. And that's all it was. So when they when they built Gillette Stadium, uh, they had this vision to develop the property and make it a 365-day-year destination as opposed to, say, a 10- to 20-day-year destination. So they developed Patriot Place around, which is a shopping and retail and dining development. And I like to say the crown jewel of that was the team's Hall of Fame Museum, which is right outside the north end zone of Gillette Stadium and really the anchor for the north end of Patriot Place, while the Bass Pro Shop is the premier, I'd say, retail store on the property. And that's at the south end opposite us. So it really provides two really good anchors. Okay, because they've had a rich history. They were in the AFL. I'm a big Chiefs guy, so I know a little bit about the AFL and those old rivalries. And now that rivalry continues like 60 years later with the Chiefs and Patriots. So it's funny how those things come back. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, this sounds arrogant, Andrew, and I, I, I swear I don't mean it this way. You know, for two decades, I mean, the Patriots have really, we've been incredibly fortunate, say it that way. You know, I think it's, I mean, you know, you, have this great head coach who drafts a quarterback in the sixth round who ends up being probably the greatest player of all time uh, with now his seventh Super Bowl championship, even though it was somewhere else. And we're very fortunate. But, you know, when it comes to rivals, you look over time and, you know, back in the 01 period, it was the Steelers and then it was the Colts and, and then it became the Chiefs. And so I look at that and say, gee, you know, I reflect in such a, such an appreciative manner to say we've been able to have these conference rivals over such a long period of time, but we've been able to sustain it now this year, you know, seven and nine and miss the playoffs. I think, you know, you look at, at Kansas city over the last three years. Okay. So very easily could have won the Super Bowl in 2018, won it in 2019, very easily could have won it in 2020. And, you know, lost an overtime AFC championship game in 2018. And this year, lost the Super Bowl. It just shows you how hard it is to actually win that last game. And fans out here are so passionate, but have gotten a little spoiled, I think, and sort of don't necessarily understand how hard it is to do what they've done. You know, I mean, we were the laughing stock of football in 1990, you know, one in 15, you know, two in 14 in 1992. I mean, we had this period after the Super Bowl, after Super Bowl 20 between 1997 and 1992, where we were as bad as any franchise in football over that whole period of time. And then, you know, started to turn it around, took a couple steps back. And then in 2001, just really kind of took off and, you know, such a hard thing to do but in our museum we have to make sure that when you come in like our signature film you see refrigerator perry scoring a touchdown in super bowl 20 you see brett Favre running down the field with his helmet off 
celebrating in Super Bowl 31. People said, why did you include that in the film? And we said, because you have to feel the pain to appreciate the success. And I think that you always have to remember that. And, you know, maybe some of our fans have lost sight of that because we've been so successful because, you know, this year there's a lot of complaining, <laughs> but, you know, it's been an incredible ride and, and, and we've been very fortunate in the museum For to sure. be able to document it firsthand for most of it. Yeah. That, that period of 2007, 2008, that was like right after their kind of first wave. And then they, they had that undefeated regular season and then they kind of had a, a second wave within the past like five or six years. Yeah. That 2007 season was a crusher. Yeah. We were, I was planning a 19 and 0 exhibit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, those plans were wrecked for sure. But I wanted to ask you about like the next kind of era of Patriots football, because obviously Tom Brady is no longer with the franchise. And like they had a, a season that they're not used to, like you just said, up there this last season. So how does the museum kind of document this kind of new, I don't know if it's a new era, but kind of just a different time? Well, so so a couple things. So we, we still actively collect game used memorabilia from milestones, record-setting performances, that kind of thing. So, so, for example, you know, Cam Newton probably didn't have the greatest year, right? But he did tie our franchise record for rushing touchdowns by a quarterback with 12. Steve Grogan set that record back in 1976 of Kansas State. And he, uh, it was actually an NFL record that Cam Newton broke in his rookie year at Carolina. Came here this year, set our franchise record for most rushing attempts and yards by a quarterback, and tied Grogan's record, which stood, you know, for almost 40 years, you know, for, for most rushing touchdowns by a quarterback. So, you know, we still will celebrate that and chronicle those moments and milestones. But we have an exhibit called um, Building Blocks where we chronicle the history of the team. And, and you know, we do a digital timeline in that. And so this year, you know, we'll point out, you know, that things weren't great. And, you know, when you go through that, we, you know, we usually have like five thumbnails under each year with videos or photos or, you know, clippings from the papers, things like that. And two of them this year, we'll, one of them will focus on COVID protocols, but also, you know, how teams struggled through that. I mean, you know, they got off to the OK start, lost that close game on the last play in Seattle, and then... Newton tests positive for COVID and Gilmore tests positive for COVID. They go basically two weeks without practicing and they lose four games in a row. And then from there, it was just a struggle. So, you know, I think you know, this year, you know, they've had to do something that they really haven't done since that 2000, 2001 off season. And that's really kind of rebuild the roster. You know, they, they, in 2000, they went out, they actually signed 21 free agents Many of those guys went on to be key contributors, you know, guys that you wouldn't even have thought. David Patton, uh, Mike Vrabel, Larry Izzo on special teams, Brian Cox, Roman Pfeiffer, Otis Smith, Antoine Smith, uh, Terrell Buckley, you know, guys that contributed to Super Bowl championship. And that kind of got the ball rolling. And then Brady, you know, kind of didn't ask a lot of Brady that first year, but you could see that he go out there and run the offense and move the team. And then in 2002, they missed the playoffs at nine and seven. They really opened up the offense for Brady through for over 4,000 yards. I think he led the league in touchdowns that year and they missed the playoffs at nine and seven, but that got the ball rolling. In 2003, they added guys like Rodney Harrison and Roosevelt Colvin and Tyrone Poole and went, and then went on to win back-to-back -back Super Bowls. And then it kind of just took from there. Yeah, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see like how they can overcome because they have that Patriot way culture that is so entrenched and it's just, they really got to stick to that now, I think. Well, you know, and I, I, there's a lot of scuttle and, and about players not wanting to come here because Brady's not here and things of that nature. And, you know, I can't say that that's, I can't speak for guys, but I think, you know, when, when you get with Bill Belichick, if you want to work hard and win, you will love Bill Belichick. And you know, he asks a lot. It's, you know, it's not a game. It's, it's, it's a job. And your job is to win. And we had uh, Dwayne, what's his name? Tight end that we got from the Colts. Dwayne Allen. Dwayne Allen. Yeah. Came over from Indianapolis. And he was on the Colts team that lost the AFC championship game in Foxborough 45 to 7. 
and he was doing a speaker series with some fans at our Hall of Fame. And he was somebody asked him a question, and he said, "You know, when I was in Indianapolis, we were coming here for the AFC Championship. I thought we were going to win. I thought we were a better team and more talent." He goes, "We lost forty-five to seven. I got on that plane and I said, what happened? I have no idea how that just happened.'" And then I signed here and I realized that it was pretty simple. They just work harder and the demands are a lot. And I think, you know, when I go back to the, the period, I started with the Patriots right after Bill Parcells had left and Pete Carroll was hired. And Pete Carroll, I think, has learned a lot since then. And, you know, I, I think that the players were given a little – wiggle room that Bill Parcells didn't give them. And when you give the players that, they sort of took advantage of that. They didn't maybe lack a little bit of leadership at that time. And they went from 11 and five in a Super Bowl team to 10 and six, to nine and seven, to eight and eight, to five and 11 before they turned it around. And so, you know, it takes discipline and, you know, nobody, nobody, I won't say he's the hardest worker ever, but nobody worked harder than Tom Brady. And when your quarterback and your leader is that guy, that permeates your locker room. And when he's also willing to take the criticism from the coach, you know, I, I think you see situations and, you know, where players, you know, get a little more say than they probably should in things. And, and with, with the Patriots, you know, I don't think Tom Brady had a say in who they were signing and who they, you know, it was Bill is building the team. And Tom was a player and Bill was the coach and that was the relationship. And, you know, I think Tom's unselfishness, willingness to take coaching and take criticism, even after winning four, five, six Super Bowls, was part of the key to the success. So now it's the task is to go out there and find a guy, uh, you know, whether it's this year or, or moving forward, that you can really coach up. And, and Brady was, he was awesome. He was a great leader. He went on and brought some of that to Tampa. And I was very happy for him this year. You know, I mean, I don't have any rooting interest for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but I certainly was happy for Tom Brady and his success because I appreciate everything he did here as well. Yeah, I think that's a special part of being a fan and like being in the sports world is that you can have those like relationships and connections with players. And then if they do leave, you're still happy for them, but then you still want to like maintain your fandom for another, for like your own team. So I think that's, that's kind of a fun balance. Yeah, I was. I always say we root for laundry. Right. If Tom Brady went to the Jets, I can tell you I'd be rooting against them 16 times in right. a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask about um, more more the museum specifically now and how the COVID pandemic has impacted things. I, I believe you guys were shut down for several months. And like, what, what kind of impact did that have besides the more obvious um, shutdown? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, from a revenue standpoint, it, it's a big thing. But, you know, what we did when we closed our doors was we immediately went to work on, okay, what can we do? Stay connected with our constituents, with Patriots fans. Um, one of the things we did was we targeted kids and parents that were now suddenly stuck at home, learning from home, so to speak, in the spring when this came, you know, like a whirlwind. I don't think schools, educators were fully prepared. I mean, how could they be? And right. So I think that spring learning process was challenging. So what we tried to do was provide activities, you know, STEM-related science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM-related activities, fun activities, you know, Mad Lib-type things, word searches, crosswords, projects that you could do at home, things that kids and parents could do that were educational and fun so that you could do those at home. So that's one thing we tried to do. The other thing we did was we had some lesson plans that were part of our education program that we had worked with teachers to develop uh, several years back that we really don't utilize that much, but we instantly put those out there for teachers. We we're looking for something different to do with kids that could be tailored for virtual experiences. So we did that. We also, you know, used our social media accounts and our website while we were planning to reopen and going through all the different scenarios as to what the protocols would have to be. We developed different tiers of, okay, this is level one, level two, level three, level four. When we reopen, what will we need to do? 
So we were working with that and just trying to stay connected. Like we have a membership program. We called every member uh, that we have on the phone and we assured them that the memberships would be extended. You know, so we just try to use the the outlets that we had, stay connected. We did a campaign, uh, Why I Love the Hall. And people sent us, you know, what they love about our Hall of Fame. And we kind of shared that as a social media campaign. We did our first online exhibit called Patriots Memories. So we solicited fans to send us their favorite memories, a picture if they had it. Um, and then if we needed, if it was a game or something we had a picture of, we would add that to it or a video or something along those lines. So we created an online exhibit and really just tried to stay connected until we reopened, which we did uh, at the start of the football season, but only on weekends. So a lot of our weekday attendance is field trips. We do almost upwards of about 25,000 people annually on school field trips. Well, that wasn't an option. So we, we began looking at the option of switching that to a virtual model. So late, uh, probably in the fall, we started working on tailoring our education modules we do with students on site through a virtual process. We bought equipment, a TV, a mounted camera, professional quality, a speaker, microphone system. And uh, at the end of the year, at the end of 2020, launched our virtual field trip program. And now we're working on, I wish we had done this sooner, but we're working on uh, more virtual programming, potentially a virtual live tour, um, working with Amazon on that uh, potentially. Uh, and then you know, we did a couple of weeks ago a virtual a virtual visit with adults through a library, and we just did a kind of a, a photo tour of our museum, uh, an artifact demonstration, and then a Q and A, and they loved it. So we're working on some of that programming as well. So this is programming that we hope will benefit us when the pandemic ends and we can go back to quote unquote normal and bring students back and bring our people back, our fans back on a regular basis with fans in our stadium, which we weren't allowed to have at all this year. I know Kansas City got to have some fans. Massachusetts did not allow it. We hope by the fall that we'll be able to fill our stadium again. So, you know, that should help as well. But I think the virtual programming will help us even after the pandemic reach fans from around the country. We have fan clubs. Uh, we have some robust fan clubs around the country. So I think, you know, if we can reach out and market to those groups, we can connect with fans outside of our area as well now that we're doing virtual programming. Yeah, some of my other guests have talked about that too, that accessibility and like people from all over the world can now engage. They don't have to come to Foxborough now to come engage with the museum. And I, I love how you like educate the, um, the kids using STEM and like interacting with teachers. And um, how did that kind of come about? Because I know you like museums always want to engage kids, but what does that look like specifically for you guys? So I'll go back to the beginning when I said I didn't know what I was doing, right? So when I started, actually, um, Brent Hensel, who's now the Packers Hall of Fame, had already been hired as the curator, and, he, and then I was hired. So we were talking about education, and, and organizationally, they were talking about an education. It was, a very, it was just a word. Nobody knew what they were doing. So that's when um, I just started reaching out to other museums, Baseball Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame, the Museum of Science in Boston. And I went, I had calls with, um, but I, I, I went and met with local museums, I got on the phone with others. Uh, I went online and researched different education programs. And then I reached out to teachers that I knew and I brought them in. And I had a meeting at the stadium with these teachers and they left and they volunteered to, to develop lesson plans for us. So we developed these lesson plans similar to like what the Baseball Hall of Fame had in their education program and pro football as well. And then I hired an education coordinator who, you know, probably didn't grasp fully what I wanted to do and never really embraced it. And he was only there for a few months and then we made a change in that position. But what we were doing at the beginning wasn't sustainable, was we would send the lesson plans to the teachers. They could do something before they visited, but when they visited us, they would do a scavenger hunt and it wasn't a real, lot of educational value to the trip. So I had this vision of what I wanted to do and I hired somebody who came in and she was interviewing for the job. She was a former principal. She had actually worked for years earlier. 
and she was had just retired from school. And she came in and she was a little reluctant. I don't know if I'm going to do this. I just retired. Well, we had a two-hour conversation and she was all in. And I told her what my vision was and she was already running with it. And she took it. She ran with it. She made it better. She developed it. And so what we did was we developed education modules that we actually do with kids. So we have a helmet design module. Where we give these kids the kits and have, sit eight at a table and half the kids will develop um, using a styrofoam bowl and some materials, the shell of the helmet, and half the kids will develop the padding of the helmet. Then they go over to testing stations and they drop from fixed heights croquet balls. And they go through the whole engineering design process. We have a math module where the kids, we call it build a team, where the kids are given a salary cap or a budget and statistical information and salary data. And they have to, you know, they're an expansion team. They have to develop a team logo, write a press release, uh, what two elements they would include in their new stadium and pick five skill players and then stand up and report as to why they pick those players and what information they use. And it's a math exercise. And it's really funny. We had a kid walking out after doing it saying, I thought you guys said we were doing math today. No idea, you know, because he had fun. But we developed these football related modules. This, we have others as well. We have a nutrition module. We have some modules developed for younger kids. We also do some marketing modules for high school groups. So we have a, uh, it kind of goes across several different disciplines, journalism module. So we really try to provide an educational value for the schools. We work with Raytheon, who's our naming partner on some of that. We now do a STEM teacher of the year in Massachusetts. We work with the Massachusetts Department of Education. And we started that program in 2012 and awarded our first Massachusetts STEM teacher of the year in 2013. We do a summer reading program that we expanded this year because of COVID. Another thing we did, um, so we did an essay contest and a reading challenge. We expanded the summer reading challenge into the spring, gave out prizes and whatnot. So we really try to build on, on what we're doing on a consistent basis. And now starting to work even more with our community relations department to see how we can better mesh, use some of their programs and kind of co-brand the two departments because they do so much positive in the community, but it's also tied to education. So we really want to work together with them as well. Yeah, that's cool that you guys are um, looking to partner with them. And I think, yeah, it's great to have kids learn without even like knowing that they're learning. And I think that's the fun part about sports is like they, you can learn so much and then it doesn't feel like you're learning because it's so fun. Yeah, well, we have a couple interactives, Andrew, in the museum. One's called In the Numbers and one's called By the Numbers. So In the Numbers is the game show. And there's three levels, like basically elementary school, middle school, high school level. You come out, that we create our mascot is the game show host. He comes on the screen and he asks you questions, math, science, football related questions. And if you answer it right, you move your player down the field and the first player to score a touchdown wins. Well, when we were developing the game, somebody internally said, we should name this game the plague people are going to avoid this thing like the plague. <laughs> well, it's the first thing everybody does when they come in. And the kids love it. It's not just the kids that play, adults play it. But the kids love it. They, they'll, you'll see three or four kids. There's three different kiosks at it. So, you know, technically three people can play it. But there'll be three or four kids at each kiosk. And they're competing. And they're talking trash to each other. And they have fun with it. So I yeah. always laugh at the notion that somebody thought no one was going to want to play it. Everybody wants to play it. <laughs> that, that's fun. I wish I could have gone to a field trip like that as a as a student. I think it's there's a lot of value in that because it gets them out of the classroom, but then they're still learning. And I think that's what educators want out of a field trip. And they still get to have fun touring the museum. And it's very interactive. They can pick field goals. You know, when the huddle here, Tom Brady called plays, go in the replay booths and review plays like an official and see six Super Bowl trophies. So that doesn't hurt as well. Cool. I Online on your website, it talks about the nomination process for like the actual Hall of Fame with people being elected and stuff. And uh, your name was on there. So are you uh, one of the people that nominates it on that committee? Yeah. So we have a committee that usually varies every year, but it's usually 20 to 25 people. Many that are media members, some that have covered the team really since the beginning, although some of those people have now retired and moved on. But So we have about 20 to 25 people that meet each year usually a couple hall of famers in the mix and what happens is we meet usually in april 
And anyone on the committee can stand up and nominate a player who has been retired for four years or more. And you can nominate anybody. There's no other criteria other than you've been retired for four years or more. So after the nomination process, we go through and everybody who's been nominated, we have a discussion, sometimes a debate. And then at the end of those debates, and you know, if you if you feel strongly about somebody, you make the case. At the end of that, everybody on the committee gets to vote first place, second place, third place, five, three, and one point for first, second, and third. And the three highest vote getters go on Patriots.com as finalists, and our fans select the inductee here. So that's one way you can get in. Another way you can get in is we have a senior selection committee, which would be the 10 most senior members of the regular committee that are present at that particular year. And if a player has been retired for 25 or more years and been a previous finalist, not been elected by the fans, the senior selection committee can elect that player by, by getting eight out of 10 of those votes. So it's pretty stringent. Uh, to get in that way. And then the final way you can get in is as a contributor, that would be a non-player, non-head coach. Mm-hmm. And that would be like our owner. It's the only way our owner would get somebody in. So our owner actually has no say on our players going in, which kind of shields him from any, you know, from guys that might think they deserve to be in. And, you know, you have that, right? Guys that feel they deserve it, not aren't getting in yet. Well, they can't blame the owner because he's not part of the process. Yeah. And the contributors, we have two contributors in right now. One is our original owner who founded the team, uh, Billy Sullivan, back in 1959. And uh, Bill Santos, who is the voice of the Patriots, our radio by play voice for over 25 years. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you about that because I, I think it's cool that the, the process is so so thorough. And then like now you guys are going to have like all sorts of names from these like last 20 years or so to go through and um, nominate because there's so many great Patriots over the years. Well, and it's hard because, you know, that every year, I mean, you could certainly make the legitimate argument that all three finalists right. deserve to be in. Mike Vrabel, the head coach of the Titans, has been a finalist for five straight years. I'm sure when he gets called now and says he's a finalist, he hangs up. But the fans haven't yeah. elected him yet, you know, and uh, he certainly deserves it. He's such an impact player here during those first three Super Bowls. But it's hard, and now you get – Guys like Vince Wilfork, who are now eligible, and Wes Welker, you know, so it's it's certainly going to be a process. But, you know, I like the way we do it because it keeps it elite. You know, it should be hard to get in. That's the way I look at it, you know. I think we all can look at different halls of fame and have our opinions and guys that get in. I like that guys that are getting into our hall of fame, there's virtually no debate whether they deserve it or not. Yeah. And it's cool that you guys involve both groups. The fans have the final say, but then the nominating committee has all this past knowledge and like they're the historians and the writers and all that stuff. So I, I like that balance that you all have too. Yeah. It's, it's a nice way to do it. And, and giving the fans a say keeps them invested in the process. For sure. Cool. I wanted to ask you about opposing fans that come into the museum. I always think that's interesting because I've been that fan. Like I, I love to travel to different stadiums and halls of fame with my family and like wear my Kansas city gear. And then it's a city in Ohio or something. And then you're the outlier. So what is that process like up in Boston? We actually have quite a few, especially, you know, around game weekends. It's really funny because I think they really enjoy the facility. First of all, you know, I think if you're a football fan, or a sports fan, you're going to enjoy it. In fact, we've had couples come in where, you know, one member of the couple is a football fan and the other isn't. And I've had the one who isn't tell me how much they enjoyed their experience anyway. But I always joke when I see fans of other teams and I say, I always say, oh, hey, welcome. I hope you enjoy the experience. Just so you know, when you leave, you're going to want to get rid of that gear and buy new gear in the pro shop. And they're like, no, 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 no. It was a really funny story. One day I was standing outside. It was a preseason game. We were playing the Eagles. And I was standing outside our main doors, which also are the doors to come out of the pro shop. And this fan walks out, takes his Eagles hat off, throws it in the garbage barrel, rips the tags off a Patriots hat, and puts it on. And I go, we got one. <laughs> but I, I, I really – I actually enjoy it. We had a playoff game against the Texans where a couple came in, one – 
member was wearing Patriots gear and the other person was wearing Texans gear. Um, so it's always fun. I, I think it's great when fans from other teams come in. I actually would love, you know, I love getting feedback from them about their experience, what they thought of it, you know, because not a lot of teams have actual museums. I know the Chiefs have a, a display on their concourse historic. Um, the Vikings just built one. The Packers have one and the 49ers have one. I don't think there's any other teams that have physical, physical structures uh, that are dedicated to a museum. So, you know, I'm always curious as to see what fans of other teams think, even though it's obviously a Patriots facility and they may despise the Patriots for that matter. Right. But I think their, their opinion would be even more valuable because the Patriots fans are, are biased in, in a lot of ways with, with all the memorabilia and artifacts. So yeah, I like that uh, perspective for sure. And I think crafts, you know, it's really funny. The crafts over the years have always put the league above the team. Mm-hmm. You know, they understand that the success of the league is the most important and benefits the teams individually. And, you know, I, th- I think we just kind of take that same approach. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the NFL and we're all in it together. Yeah. So, so fans of other teams are just as valuable, you know, in terms of the health of the league as our fans. And we love having them come in. Yeah, definitely. If it's a Steelers fan, I might give them a little bit of crap. Or That's part of the fan, fun. But, you know, yeah. That's the way it goes. They would they give it yeah. back, so it's okay. Yeah, and it's all in good fun. That's what I love about sports is that like emotional connection and like the memories. And you were saying earlier like how the the memories from the first like kind of playoff run and Super Bowl run that sticks with fans and they like remember where they were and stuff like that. Do you have any cool memories like that where maybe like a really an older fan would come in and like talk about like Steve Grogan like back in the seventies and stuff like that? Yeah, well, you know, I think the biggest one from the seventies is that people talk about is in nineteen seventy six, which many thought was up until the modern era, the greatest team in, in franchise history. That was when they there was only fourteen regular season games. And Raiders that year went thirteen and one and their one loss to the Patriots, and the Patriots hammered them like 42 to something. And uh, the Patriots went into Pittsburgh that year and beat the defending champion Steelers in Creamer Stadium. And so I think there was a lot of hope for the Patriots. They went to Oakland for a playoff game, and they were winning late. The Raiders were in a third and 19 situation, and Sugar Bear Hamilton rushing Kenny Stabler his hands up stabler just flails a pass and his right hand kind of grazed the helmet you know this was 1976 so we didn't have the same rules we have today too even today it would be questionable but he really just grazed the helmet and everybody in new england knows who the official was a guy named ben Dreith, and he throws a flag for roughing the passer on a third and 19 ball that landed five yards out of bounds and so it gave the Raiders a first down. And they went on to win that game on the, in the final seconds. And so that that is a play that lives in infamy. Now, Raider fans would counter with the tuck rule, 2001. And I say, well, it took 25 years for us to avenge the phantom roughing the passer mm-hmm. call. That's how we phrase it, uh, with the tuck rule. So I think that that's a, a significant year in Patriots history um, and a significant memory for people. I mean, obviously, you know, in 1985, Patriots became the first team to win three road playoff games to reach the Super Bowl. They obviously didn't win it, but uh, they had lost 18 games in a row at Miami's Orange Bowl in 1967 and 1985 and went down there for the AFC Championship. Uh, and, and beat Miami 31-14 to 14 to reach the Super Bowl. And, and people can definitely tell you where they were for that. And then the snowball playoff game, the one I just mentioned with the Tuck Rule in 2001, which was also the last game played at Foxborough Stadium. You know, in this, it, you know, it was kind of this, this dramatic night, right? So you have the snow falling. you got a playoff atmosphere. you got the Tuck Rule play. You've got Adam Vinatieri's 45-yard game-tying field goal in the final minute that ties the game and sends it to overtime. Uh, that's Steve Sable. I won't even say Brian Moore. Steve Sable from NFL Films called it the greatest pick in NFL history. And then, you know, you go on to win that game in overtime. And, you know, back at the old stadium, so I was covering the team then, the media would come down from the press box with five minutes to go because you had to go outside. 
there was no, you didn't like now you kind of come down, you're in the concourse and you go to the locker room. But we had to go outside through the concourse, down past the visitor's locker room and wait because our access to the, the Patriots locker room was from the field. Same way the players left the field with how the media would go to the locker room. So we would go down and wait. And at the two-minute warning, we'd be allowed into the back of the end zone. Well, the tuck rule play happened right then. So I'm standing in the back of the end zone watching the replay on our old crappy video boards that we had at the old stadium. I'm thinking, gee, that looks like a fumble. But, you know, by rule, we're called correctly by rule. And then it was just amazing to be standing there. And that game-time field goal was at the opposite end of the stadium the only reason I knew it was good was because of the crowd reaction. You couldn't see because of the snow. And uh, to close out the stadium that way, I always joke that that stadium held 60,000 people, but I think there were 350,000 that attended that game. Right. I, so many people say, oh, I was there. I'm like, really? Because there's no way everybody was there. But I think that is a huge memory on the way to our first Super Bowl title, and you know, then we went on to Pittsburgh and scored two touchdowns on special teams to beat Steelers. We were big underdogs in that game, and then 14 playing underdogs. Before everyone hated us, everyone rooted for us in Super Bowl 36 because we were the the big underdog. And to beat the greatest show on turf, St. Louis Rams, was pretty incredible. And you know, we like we have the clip in the museum where um, uh, Ricky Prohl, wide receiver for the Rams. It's outside, you know, kind of the Rams tunnel where the players come on. And he looks at the camera and he says, tonight, the dynasty is born. And we like to joke that he was right. He just had the wrong team. He was right. Yeah. <laughs> Those are great stories. I think that's that's the most fun part about sports for me, I think, is like remembering where I was when something happened or um, having those memories like with my family and my friends. So that's really, really cool. I remember tearing off my Barry the Bear shirt at halftime of Super Bowl 20 and throwing it on the ground because I was so upset because we were getting killed by the Bears. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Even the bad times, we that, that sticks with us, even those hard losses in, in playoff games for sure. Yeah, as we wrap up here, Brian, I wanted to talk about your role with the International Sports Heritage Association, ISHA, and I believe you were past president of that group. So what what was that like, and how does that group just kind of influence the sports museum world? Well, I think it gives amazing support, and, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have gotten involved. I started attending the conference back in 2008. My first one was at in Cincinnati at the Reds Hall of Fame. And then 2010, maybe, where I first joined the board. And the board is so committed to supporting sports heritage and the institutions, the member institutions, and even the vendors that are part of our group that really help support our success as museums, that, you know, the people that we turn to develop new exhibits, to design new exhibits, to install them. You know, it's such a great committed group to give their time. And, you know, this year was such a challenging year. And I think that group worked hard to stay connected, to switch from a live conference to virtual conference, even though it was an abbreviated version. It was just a way to say, hey, we're still here. We're still trying to support and connect with you. And I think our members really appreciated that. And I just, I'm just proud to have been a part of it. I'm still, you know... Now I'm in my last two years on the board as past president. Once you become, once you finish your two-year term as president, you have two years as past president before you move off the board. And it's going to be really strange. I've been on the board for, you know, 11, 12 years. And it's just such a great group of people that I'm so lucky. I've learned so much from all of them, you know, and, and the networking. And, you know, like I just had a meeting uh, recently with four people that I would say smaller institutions make sure that we are serving those institutions too. Sometimes I think it's easy to get caught up in these big budget halls of fame and museums when we're planning conferences and stuff. Well, no, we need to serve everybody. So how do we do that? And I was really pleased to hear their feedback that they really felt that we were doing that. So that was really great to hear from them, you know, um, that they feel well served in our you know, our website that we try to maintain. And it's hard. It's all volunteers, right? We're all running our own institutions. So it's a, it's a challenge, certainly, to make the time. But, you know, like we have a section on our website that we call Issue University, where you can go and gather information. We do hot topic calls periodically that are informative, like conference sessions 
on, you know, virtually now it used to be on the phone, but now virtually um, that we now share with the membership. So you can go on issue university and access that as well as any document bylaw examples, loan agreements, things you might need that are accessible to other museums. So I think the, the group does a great job of voluntarily trying to serve the members and really networking is such a valuable piece of it. Yeah, I saw that when I went in the 2019 conference in Wichita and like, I didn't even realize all the vendors and really what it took to run a museum and just meeting some of um, those folks like you and like the vendors that design and like all the lighting and all of that, just kind of getting exposure to them. That was really neat to yeah. see as someone who like is interested in the field and just didn't realize like all of the, all of the different businesses and different kind of components of it. So that was really neat for me to see too. Yeah. And I think Andrew, that it's, when you go to our conference, you wouldn't know who runs the biggest museum and who runs a small county museum in northern Michigan. You know, like it's just everybody treats everybody the same. There's no, you know, there's no sense of entitlement. There's no, well, I'm from here. There's none of that. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. we're all we're all together. And I think the comfort level that, that provides for everybody is certainly you know, it eases their their way into the group that they, you know, I was talking to Vic Burwell from the Mason County Sports Hall of Fame. And he's the one who said that to me. He goes, you know, I feel so comfortable in that setting, even though I'm operating a small museum with a small budget. And so that that, that was great to hear because that's what we're yeah. trying to do. Because there's so many different museums out there, even putting together this podcast, I've found some that I, I never even heard of. And then you have like team hall of fames like yours and then like the kind of the big guns like the baseball hall of fame and pro football hall of fame. So it's, it's kind of a wide ranging field, but I think that's what makes it pretty cool is that you can all stay connected in some way and kind of be together like that. And it was really uh, Susan Wasser, uh, who was the president before me, who pushed to start our emerging professionals program to really make sure that we're embracing young people who are looking to get into the business like you. And, you know, I always talk about relationships and, you know, you heard me describe how I got to the Patriots through basically a relationship. Right. And because I worked really hard and a lot of hours when I worked for Beth James, she felt comfortable recommending me to her husband at the Patriots. Well, I actually, when I was at the University of Rhode Island working in sports information, uh, the kid who was the sports editor of the student newspaper um, would come in my office at stats. I would see him covering games all the time. Really just a light kid who I felt worked hard. I'd read his stuff in the student newspaper and just formed a positive opinion of the kid. He didn't even know what I thought of him. You know, we didn't talk that much. It was, he'd walk in, hey, can you tell me where the volleyball stats are? Yeah, they're right over there on the shelf. You know, like, can I help you with anything else? No, okay, we'll see you at the game, mm -hmm. you know? Fast forward a few years, I'm at Patriots Football Weekly, and I'm hiring an intern, and I have four people that I'm interviewing that had applied out of the applicants, and I finished the interview process, and I didn't want to hire any of them. And so I sat back, and I said, hmm, this kid's name was Shane Donaldson. And I said, I wonder what Shane Donaldson's doing these days. I knew he had graduated. I made some calls down to URI to some contacts I still had. You know, I tracked him down through those contacts. I called him. He wasn't working in the business, and I hired him all because he left a good impression on me. Came up and interviewed and we hired him. And now he's back as the sports information director at the University of Rhode Island, in my old boss's job. So, you know, it worked out well for him. So you never know which relationship is sure. gonna help you. Yeah, thanks, Brian. This has been great. I've enjoyed getting to talk to you. And do you, do you wanna share like where people can find you both in person and online? Yeah, sure. Um, our, our website is patriotshalloffame.com, www, obviously, patriotshalloffame.com. There's a lot of content on there. You can certainly check out our exhibits. We have 360 degree views of those that we just put up recently. So you can check out our exhibits on there and our Hall of Famers as well, as well as any news content, interesting content that we've posted on our website. Uh, our social media handles on Twitter, we're The Hall. On Instagram, we're Patriots Hall. The Hall was taken. And on Facebook, the other that we're on and YouTube, I believe it's just Patriots Hall of Fame. Um, we're located in Foxborough, Massachusetts, right next to Gillette Stadium. If you're out this way, sure to come see us. For sure. I, I hope to make it up to uh, the Boston area again. I've, I've been there before. Just love it, even as a Midwestern guy. So I think it's it's really cool. And next time I'm up there, I'll be sure to check out the Patriots Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, definitely appreciate your time, Brian. And um, even as even as a Chiefs guy, this was this was great for me. And um, yeah, it'll be a, a, a fun rivalry to continue. Well, you're in a good period. Yes, you're definitely. In a good period it's it's, for the it's been fun to follow. So, yeah, thanks you, Brian, and um, best of luck to you with the Patriots Hall of Fame. Thanks, Andrew. Since many of my listeners are more familiar with the Patriots' most recent success and stars like Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, and Bill Belichick, I thought I would talk about Steve Grogan for this episode's overtime segment. Steve is arguably the best Patriots QB not named Tom Brady. Also, Steve ties into my most recent episode as he attended high school and college in Kansas and was inducted into the Kansas Sports Hall of Fame in 1999. Be sure to check out that episode if you're interested. Let's dive into the life and career of Steve Grogan. Steve was born July 24, 1953 in San Antonio, Texas, but then went to high school in Ottawa, Kansas, which is a town about an hour southwest of Kansas City. In Ottawa, he played football, basketball, and track. Steve then attended Kansas State University and played from 1972 to 1974. He was in the Kansas State Ring of Honor, and his number 11 was retired. He is a 1995 Kansas State Athletics Hall of Fame inductee. After his time in Manhattan, Steve was drafted by the Patriots in the fifth round of the 1975 NFL Draft. In just his second season, Steve led the Patriots to an 11-3 record in his starts and set the NFL quarterback single-season rushing touchdown record with 12. That was broken later by current Patriots QB Cam Newton. Steve's best season statistically came in 1979, where he led the league with 28 passing touchdowns and led the Patriots to a 9-7 record. He played more sparingly starting in 1981, but was very productive when he played, and he was a fan favorite for his gritty, hard-nosed style and was beloved by his teammates. He helped lead the Pats to their first AFC Championship and Super Bowl appearance in 1985, where they lost to the Bears, but Steve was 17 for 30 with 177 yards, one touchdown, but two interceptions. Steve retired in 1990, having played 149 games in his 16-year career. When he retired, he led the Patriots in virtually all passing categories. Currently, he ranks second all-time in Patriots history in passing touchdowns, third in yards, and fourth in rushing touchdowns, and he was inducted into the Patriots Hall of Fame in 1995. You can find the Patriots Hall of Fame online at PatriotsHallOfFame.com or at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough right outside Boston, Massachusetts. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website and social media pages. Thanks again to Brian for being my fourth guest. I hope you enjoyed episode four of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss our next one. Also, leaving a five-star rating and review helps this podcast gain exposure on those various apps. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.